Hello everybody and welcome to Over the Rainbow, an LGBTQ plus podcast dedicated to queer education and queer representation. I'm your host, Rachel Keithley, and I use she, her pronouns. Today's guest is Nicholas Moran. Nicholas uses they, them pronouns and is a queer, non-binary and genderqueer New York State psychotherapist, clinical supervisor and anti-oppression slash LGBTQIA consultant. In today's episode, we talk about all the incredible work Nicholas does regarding mental health, sex positivity and inclusivity. We discuss exploring your gender and sexuality and the challenges and barriers some individuals may face. Nicholas uses their experiences growing up and discovering their identities in conservative America to empower individuals to safely explore their identity free from judgment. Within this topic, we discuss some of the barriers LGBTQ people face when accessing mental health services and the lack of inclusive LGBTQ sex education. Finally, we discuss some of the important consultation work Nicholas does to amplify the messages and teachings of queer, TGNC and BPOC communities to create inclusive and affirming practices and policies in the workplace. And as always, we share some great resources around LGBTQ mental health support. Today is an incredibly important episode with some really powerful themes, so I hope you enjoy it. If anyone needs any further support, please do not hesitate to reach out. So with that in mind, let's get on with the show. Welcome to Over the Rainbow. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm very good. Thank you. Would you like to introduce yourself to the listeners? Name, pronouns, a bit about what you do? Absolutely. Um, So my name is Nicholas Moran. I'm a licensed mental health counselor in the state of New York. Um, I'm here in New York City. I identify as queer and non-binary and I use they, them, theirs pronouns. I kind of juggle a couple different roles as I own my own business, which is predominantly a private practice for psychotherapy services or coaching services, which there is a little bit of a distinction between the two. Um, But I also provide clinical supervision for folks who are seeking hours towards full licensure or people who already have their license who are looking for a clinician with expertise in the area of gender and sexuality to help them provide better services for those clients or have a practice that's more um, inclusive and more um, affirmative for those kinds of folks. And then I also do a little bit of consulting and guest speaking on the side where I'll do workshops and conferences as well as work with agencies around ensuring that policies and procedures are more inclusive of folks who identify as gender expansive um, or folks who are queer and uh, ensuring that the safe is like really space of um, inclusivity and like really just a safer space for folks who are queer. Yeah, that's amazing. And we'll definitely get more into that later on in the episode. But to begin with, uh, I want us to share something we've done this week to engage in queer activism or queer education. So do you want to go first or shall I? Um, I can absolutely go first if you'd like me to. Yeah, Um, off you go. (laughs) 
Yeah. So this past week on Sunday, um, I ran a wonderful um, consultation group and it was comprised of a variety of uh, therapists in the city who have actually been practicing for many more years than I have, but have found it really difficult to access or keep clients who identify as queer or gender expansive. Um, And so I created this workshop as an opportunity to help um, older clinicians, clinicians with like 15, 20 years experience to kind of have this crash course in learning terminology that's like associated with the queer community, but also learning how to um, write letters um, for folks who are exploring medical transitions or legal or social transitions um, for their gender identity. Um, And it's going to be a series. So we're going to meet every two weeks um, on Sundays for a couple hours. Um, And I'm just going to really field questions for them. And so I got to do that this past Sunday and it was absolutely wonderful. These folks like are so brilliant and have so much experience in the field, but we're really recognizing that they didn't learn um, 10, 15 years ago, anything related to like queer mental health. Um, And so they're really uh, taking a risk with someone who's kind of newer to the field um, to get them associated with how to best provide care for clients um, who identify as queer or gender expansive. That's absolutely amazing. And it's amazing on their part that they're willing to do that and recognize their need to expand. So that's really cool. Thank you for doing that. Absolutely. It's so refreshing and so exciting um, just to kind of be with other folks. And especially as someone who like thinks about age a lot, because I really like went from school straight into my profession. I'm like, oh, who's going to want to listen to me? I'm so young. I'm 27. Um, But it's amazing to um, have like a cohort of folks who like see and value like my lived experience as a queer and non-binary person, but also as a clinician early on in my career to really listen um, and see me as someone who may have some sort of expertise or a working expertise in that regard. Yeah, definitely. There's some mutual respect in the field there and that's really needed, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, thank you for that example. Uh, So for me, I watched a Louis Theroux documentary on trans kids in the USA. Have you ever heard of Louis Theroux? I have. Yeah, I love him. So I can't believe I've never seen this particular episode. I've seen what I thought was every single episode he's ever churned out. Um, And for those who are listening and haven't seen it, it's on BBC iPlayer in the UK. I assume you can get it in the US as well. Um, But yeah, basically he was following the lives of a few trans kids of various ages Um, And the processes that they have to go through, so whether that's in terms of puberty blockers really early on, so when they're like 10, um, and then going on hormones if they wanted that later down the line, and then as adults potentially opting for surgeries. Um, And it was quite eye-opening really seeing like just visualizing the processes and the challenges and the barriers that these trans kids have to go through first in terms of like realizing their own gender and not necessarily having the language to put to it when they're like, three and then their parents some of their parents were amazing and I was like can we parade you around the world because they were so like yep my kid says that she's a girl she's a girl like we're doing everything we can for her whereas others were like no I'm my my kid was born a son they're a boy I'm going to use the name that they were born with etc and like that's obviously hard as well 
Um, I mean, it was just awful to see. And then how hard it is for some of them to have to go on the hormones. And I'd never really thought about this. Like, this was the thing that I really learned. I guess I'd taken it for granted that like trans kids have the option of these hormones. And then like, I didn't think that it was a complete fix, but I thought, well, these hormones are great for them. But some kids were saying, no, it's really hard because these hormones are the only thing that is helping me to be my true self and my gender and like there's all these cis kids out there who don't need them and they never have to think about this medication and I do and I was just like whoa like I had not thought about it in that way and just how hard that that can be so yeah it really really has made me think I don't really have anything to say other than that it it's shit Absolutely. I haven't seen this episode and I definitely want to check it out. Um, It sounds super incredible. But yeah, I can't agree more when it comes to hormone treatment. I, I know as a therapist talking through with clients, sometimes, especially when folks are a bit older, or perhaps like in our 20s or 30s, starting to kind of have an awakening of our like, an exploring of our gender. Um. I've noticed that there's this like fear of the permanence of using hormones. Um, Like, how do I know for sure? Can I try it out? Is there like a point in time where it's irreversible? And this like idea of permanence or like maybe I'm not enough in terms of like my trans identity Um, in, in kind of thinking of this identity as like one that has to be like the transition from one binary to the next. And if we don't fit that narrative, then should I be allowed to try hormones or have a surgery um, that affirms my gender identity or how I define it? And also like sometimes with these hormones, it's it's like a second puberty of sorts that folks can go through in terms of just like a rapid change in our emotions. Cause like puberty is so like crazy time where like our emotions are everywhere. Um, and also sometimes it can be scary, especially if folks are really only provided the option of like an injection. If folks are like terrified of needles um, and like really exploring what kind of HRT is best for them. Yeah, there's just so many layers to it, aren't there? And it's just, I don't know, I mean, it's just something I clearly took for granted that I don't have to use and I didn't know about. And now I I want to know more and know how best to support people having to go through that. And I guess that's something that you do in your work. So this is quite a nice segue for you to share your work as a mental health counsellor and how you support the queer and non-binary community. Like as a therapist, I'm not a medical professional in the terms of like understanding all the biology of it all, Um, but I can certainly help clients explore considerations. Like what would it be like if I started um, HRT? What would it be like if I decided that wasn't right for me a month or two down the road? Um, And I'll work in tandem if the client gives me consent um, because I I can't speak to anyone without their consent. to kind of work through that process. I think that there's also a lot of like fear about really even being able to explore who we are um, with regards to our sexuality or queerness and our gender. Um, And I think there's even more stigma on the gender piece, like as media has really kind of shown light on identities of folks who are bisexual, gay, lesbian, or even trans, this piece of like a a gender identity that doesn't fit um, into this male, female, 
um, or trans person um, is still kind of like unexplored. And I think one of the exciting things as being a therapist and working with clients around these areas is I've come to find that we actually even view like sexuality through kind of the binary lens of like, if you're gay, then it's a man liking a man. If you're a lesbian, it's a woman liking a woman. Well, what if I'm gender fluid and I like um, women? Or what if I identify as non-binary and I also like non-binary people, like then what's my sexuality? Is it a betrayal of this identity that I've told everybody about for maybe 10 years um, that may not be the truth? Am I reinforcing these ideas that it's a choice? Um, and so what I love about being a therapist, either for individuals or in group settings, because they do run some group therapy, is to really foster this sense of curiosity and normalize that that's like such a necessary piece in understanding ourselves. Like growing up, we were these really exciting, like imaginative children that could really dream up anything. We were different people probably every five minutes. Um, and then the world really made us get rid of that so that we could be like great in school or do well in our jobs and careers and there was no time for imagination and I think that's like the most essential piece for really getting to know who you are um, in the intricacies of all of our complex identities just really being in a space of non-judgment and curiosity yeah Honestly, that resonated with me on such a personal level, like thinking back to when I was figuring out my sexuality and I just felt like I had to have the answer immediately so that if people asked me, I could say with like absolute certainty, I like women or whatever it was, like this is who I am. And I didn't have the answer and that terrified me. And I thought that it wasn't okay to explore. And like you said, like kids, they do it every second of every day in every area of their life. And it's great. We encourage it. So why is it that when we get to adults, we're supposed to have the answer? And then on top of that, not only are we supposed to have an answer, but we're supposed to have an answer that fits the binary that society wants to put us in. It's like no wonder people have problems like struggling with coming to terms with themselves and have to go through such arduous processes with their mental health. Yeah, when I think about queerness, actually, I always say that it's the like radical rejection of the assumed and perceived normality of the world. And I always tell clients that I think queerness is a space of becoming. It's a utopia and a livelihood for anyone and everyone, including straight people. And it's a space where we're seeking creativity, liberation, acceptance some playfulness and truly is a space of endless possibilities yeah that sounds amazing where were you when I was figuring all this out <laughs> someone needed to tell me this yeah that's incredible so I guess did you have anyone when you were growing up and figuring out your identity did you have anyone telling you these things or have you become a mental health counselor and therapist because you didn't have that the latter. Um, growing up, I was in um, what I fondly call Pennsylvania. Um, so Pennsylvania is really this odd place in the United States where um, 
I'm from a place called Gettysburg. And in the Civil War, that was like a huge turning point for like the Union winning and the US um, like really staying together and defeating the Confederacy. But fascinatingly enough, in this area that I grew up in, it's a space that's like full of so much poverty um, and folks who like live on farms and are really like detached from like metropolitan areas that folks have really like taken on, not everyone, of course, but a lot of folks in that area have taken on this like white people as the um, like folks who are being marginalized and folks from other countries coming in and stealing our jobs. And that was certainly something that was reinforced within me. It's an area that's like highly religious. And so I grew up going to church um, not only every Sunday, but almost every day of the week, I swear, because I was in like youth choir. I was also, because I was such a good singer at the time. They also had me singing in the adult choir. There was like praise teams, handbells. So it was like every night, I swear I was at church doing some sort of rehearsal. And in these spaces, it was discussed and talked about that like being queer or being gay was not only just like a sin, but also just disgusting, like perverse. Um, and I had this deep shame within me because I truly knew that I liked at the time identifying as cis and not having any other language around it I felt like my gender never made sense but I didn't really even explore that until about six years ago when I started getting language around it um, but at the time really understanding sexuality the way that it was taught to me I was like oh my god I do not want to become a pedophile that was like my biggest fear I was like taught that gay people touched children I was like I love children I was a babysitter I was like I would never harm a kid but then I'm being told that this piece of me means that I must be that thing and it was really like hard to grapple with and wrestle with. Um, and I had like no one, there was nobody in my schools that identified um, outwardly as gay. I mean, I was the first person that came out in my school in high school and I was labeled the gay kid. So everyone that came after me was never subject to the same amount of like bullying that I had. Um, like folks like putting like terrifying messages in my locker, um, like assaulting me in like the lunch line, um, like in gym class, really trying to keep my head down because folks would claim that I was looking at their private parts. But it was really tough. I had no one to look up to. I had no one to go to. And instead I really like delved into my studies and like the arts at the time as a singer and a dancer to really be able to process my emotions and express myself. And I just kept waiting for the day I could leave and go to college and like maybe encounter a world that would embrace who I was. And so that ended up catapulting me into like my career as a a therapist so that I could really be the kind of person that I never had. Um, and that's why I love doing guest speaking. Um, and like, I'm happy to do it without even like any sort of reimbursement, because I just I know how essential it is when you're a young person who has no one to look up to, like how affirming it can be just to have one person speak to your experience. A hundred percent. And it's, it's amazing. And it's like you said, the, the need, because it's not like 
the world's all perfect now and everyone's living in a safe environment in which they're able to come out a lot more people are yes but there are still plenty of people living in exactly the same like small town communities that you are where it's not just a case of people sort of calling them gay on the street it's like being told that you're a pedophile that is like that's pretty serious scary stuff like that's not a joke not that any of it is but that's terrifying and yeah it's so so needed still because that really is still out there we can't close our minds to the fact that people aren't still living in those conditions absolutely and even like on top of it if someone is even like fortunate enough to get any sort of sex education at all if that even exists I know for myself it was just don't do it um it was very like mean girls don't have sex or you'll get an std um here are some condoms um and no one showing us how to use those. It was definitely just condoms for men. There was no, like, I didn't even know that women or like female identified folks even had condoms until I was in college. And I was like, what is this? Because I had never seen it. I didn't know anything about it. Um, And I think like if there even is sex ed happening in some spaces, it's really through the lens of like cisgender and heterosex, like, between a man and a woman and how those parts work. And so I think also like an essential feature of things that I do and like more of my like activist side and speaker side is providing spaces where I can give more education about what sex looks like between folks who aren't adhering to the quote norm, um, the normal versions of sex. And so I certainly work with clients who explore their more kinky sides um, and identify with different kinds of fetishes and really give them a space where they can talk that out and really explore it because I think like that's also a space where we can really feel a sense of liberation if we allow ourselves um, the opportunity to really explore it but like the world is always telling us no 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 that's so taboo like stay away from that don't do that um where while at the same time it's this odd juxtaposition where everyone's so hypersexualized like as a society we're like yes let's sell sex all the time but let's not give like sex workers like any sort of protection and let's see them as like the most vile people in society I could not agree more like that's it's so true you're stuck between a rock and a hard place there aren't you because yeah we do sexualize everything like you just turn on the tv and it's selling sex to you but it's selling sex in such a way that's like but you yourself shouldn't know anything about it especially not if it's if it's not heterosexual cisgender like marital sex to have a child like that's it and it's you just you end up feeling like a there's something wrong with you and b you, you just think you have nowhere to go anyway so that can be quite dangerous in itself when you need to think about like protection and safety and just enabling people to be free enough to explore whatever they want to explore absolutely which i think like leads to like so many risk factors for like our queer community in terms of mental health like if you're being given all these messages that I'm like perverse, I don't belong, there's no space for me, um, it can certainly make us feel all sorts of mental health conditions and like lead to a lot of risks. 
Yeah. So what are some of these particular mental health challenges that you find LGBTQ plus people face? Absolutely. I have definitely seen, um, at least here in the US, heightened rates of depression and anxiety. I swear this is probably an exaggeration, but I feel like there is no queer person that doesn't experience one or the other, if not both, because I think that both speak to this um, feeling that we're we're really trained to like avoid, which is shame. Um, This feeling that like inherently I myself am some broken, bad, evil, like horrible thing or person. And sometimes with even like more extremes of I can't be saved. And so I think like being given that at such a young age, like from every avenue, just really sets you up for so many risks. And um, like, I also see like heightened rates of substance use amongst the queer population one, because it's a little bit normalized, like so many folks like smoke cigarettes. I myself never have just because folks in my family had had lung cancer and died. And so I didn't really want that for myself. And I used to be a singer and I was like, oh, don't want to mess up my voice or lungs, but it was everywhere. And it still is Um, like alcohol and going to clubs and partying. It's like the only safe space for us is like the queer clubs or those bars. It's like the only place where we can be amongst other people. And of course, substances are there. And then um, folks sometimes because they feel ashamed of like even engaging in sexual intercourse with someone that they're interested in may use other more extreme substances that are highly addictive like cocaine or heroin or crystal methamphetamine. And once you use them one time, you're really hooked on just the way that they're like made up chemically. I mean, it gives this opportunity to escape that shame and that feels good. And we, we want to feel good. We want to feel good about ourselves. And so I think those are some of like the big risk factors. And also when someone feels like I'm bad or broken, there's like much higher risks of folks committing suicide or even considering it. Like that's the only escape. Um, And so folks in the queer community and especially trans and non-binary individuals are like at the highest risk. And if you add in additional intersectional identities of being a person of color or in poverty, um, homelessness, um, like total rejection from your family, you're even at higher risks of developing any, if not all of these mental health conditions. And like knowing that that's all scary and it's all true, it's really real within the literature um, and research and all of that is that folks like you, folks like me, folks that are speaking about these things are really going to be able to kind of make it a really integral like stop to the truth of it. I think like with us talking about those risks and creating spaces where folks can feel validated hopefully within like say 20 years, um, hopefully sooner, we'll see like 
reduced rates of folks experiencing these mental health conditions and folks feeling more affirmed in their identity and more safe to really be whoever you want to be. And that's kind of my more hopeful side. But um, through my, my own gratitude practices, I really feel like hope is something that I want to keep alive. 100%, especially in the areas we work in, we need to, don't we? We are here on the front line, helping to make the world a better and safer place. And I think what you said about the only way that LGBTQ people can escape, that just really hits the crux of the issue because why, why do we need to f- escape? It's because society is putting this pressure on us where we don't where we feel we don't belong and no one wants to live through that it's hard and then you internalize that and so you can't even overcome it in the sense of knowing that you're okay so like you said you escape whether that's through self-harm or not even heaven forbid not even wanting to live in this world like it's that's a very real issue but also in terms of self-isolation physical isolation mental isolation with your mind not being able to deal with your emotions substance abuse etc it's I think we really need to take a hard look at society and see what it is that society is doing to cause that to look like the only option for LGBTQ people absolutely I couldn't agree more and it really is as big it's a big societal issue and in so many countries I mean I'm afforded so many protections here in the US um, and especially here in New York City where like even when our former president um, would really sign these horrible executive orders, I knew for myself here in New York City that I was safer, um, that the legislation in this state and in the city in particular wasn't going to adhere to that. I would still be able to go see my doctor. I would still be able to see my therapist. I would still be able to go to work and know that I wasn't going to get fired. Um, Whereas other folks like those risks are so much more heightened and in some countries where it's still criminalized um, like truly like can be murdered for being um, discovered as a queer person or a gender expansive person and that's that's horrifying it breaks my heart that there are people in the world who don't even can't even ask the question can't even be a like fragment of who they truly are without fear of like actually being murdered um not even killing themselves but someone else like killing them for just being themselves yeah it's it's absolutely terrifying i think the site i referenced for i think it's called 76 crimes i could really be making that up if I need to fact check this, but there is a website that lists all the countries where it's still illegal to some degree to be gay. And it, it has like a little skull and crossbow next to the countries where the death penalty is still in place for being LGBTQ. And it is terrifying because obviously, like you say, we live in very privileged societies. There's lots of rights in the UK. Yes, some of those rights have been revoked and it's absolutely awful and we need to fight against that. But thank God we do not live in a country where we would be put to death. Yeah, I've seen like certainly on like Instagram and other social media outlets like maps over like the course of time where like it's most safe to be and you know as like a queer gender expansive person it also limits like where we can go in the world like where 
I mean, we're in a pandemic at the moment. So of course our restrictions are already there, but then there's added restrictions when you are queer or gender expansive, non-binary, trans to even go to particular locations in the world because it is criminalized and unsafe. Um, so there's like pieces of the world that like we're still like not even allowed to witness, to experience because of this piece of us that's totally natural and totally normal. Yeah, I know I've definitely Googled before and there are so many forums where people say, I'm wanting to go with my girlfriend or, you know, X, Y, Z. They're all, they're LGBTQ and they're saying, I want to go to this country. Is it safe? And just like the fact that you even have to ask that question is not okay, is it? Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. It's for anyone to have to Google search. Is it safe for me, a person who's queer, to like go and experience this, this country, this culture? Um, it's, it certainly speaks to that societal component, this healing that really needs to happen on a societal level that really embraces like all versions of sexuality and gender expression. Yeah, 100%. And actually, this brings me nicely onto my next question. We've already covered one of the barriers being where you live in the world, but what other barriers are there to accessing mental health services for LGBTQ plus people? Well, I think kind of following off like how there are those like super heightened risk factors, like many queer people, and of course it's not everyone, um, really struggle with like having enough money to pay for even seeing a therapist. I, like here in the US, um, insurance, the way that it's so privatized and so expensive is so many folks can't even afford to have insurance in the first place. And then insurance companies, if you are paneled as a professional, also pay you like much less than like a livable wage. And so if you as a clinician are on an insurance panel and you're taking clients through that insurance panel, you may be saying like, hey, it's like a hundred per session to see me, but the insurance company is only paying you maybe like $50 of that, like if you've negotiated that kind of rate. Um, and so it's, it's hard because on one end as a clinician, you're being like exploited and disenfranchised through insurance companies. And then also for like clients, if you can't afford insurance, accessing mental health care is just so difficult and challenging. And if we're adding in like wanting to do some sort of medical transition, like those surgeries are so like dra like dramatically ex like so expensive. Um, and if you don't have that insurance coverage or an insurance provider that values that type of care, um, then you're like maybe not even able to become your true self um, with all of those limits and restrictions. And so a lot of us as therapists or like we'll end up 
we'll just end up deciding to do like private pay. Um, so folks not really using any sort of insurance and really negotiating with a client what feels feasible, like what can you as a client sustain for maybe meeting with a therapist every two weeks, or maybe it's weekly if you feel like that's what you need, or maybe even just a once a month space to sh like be with someone to listen and hear you out. And I think for those of us who are queer practitioners, we're like really inclined to offer these uh, sliding scale fees or like a significantly reduced rate so that clients can access us um, because it can be really meaningful and powerful to sit with someone and not have to explain it all. Like you understand because you're non-binary too, or you ex understand because you're queer and a part of this population and community. So I don't have to explain it all to you. I can just talk freely and not feel judgment and feel like we have some sort of connection. Um, and that in and of itself is also a barrier. There's very few queer, trans or non-binary providers I receive so many messages for folks looking for like care with me and I, I can only see so many people right and then like breaks my heart and we create networks with other folks but because of all of these limitations in terms of like being able to afford your education which I'm in so much debt like I couldn't even like Me so too. much. <laughs> um, like if you're not willing to take on that debt or if you don't really understand how to navigate the educational, like post-educational um, like arena, like that's what really limits folks even being able to access a provider that shares those like really important identities for them. I know that was the case for me. It took forever for me to even find a professor who was queer or openly queer. Um, it took me forever to find a therapist who identified in the LGBTQ population. And then more recently looking for someone who was like non-binary, trans or gender expansive, like forget it. There's like almost none. And I'm here in New York City, a place where you would assume like, oh, there must be, if anywhere here, a robust population of folks who, who could help me. Um, and it's just not true because of so many of those limitations. I mean, certainly even like AIDS and HIV took out an entire generation of folks who could have been that for us and weren't because society turned their backs on them. And so here we are kind of this generation without any elders um, because they were essentially left to die on their own by society. And so here we are kind of like creating that ourselves. And so it's really a tough, 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 tough thing to access care. Yeah, I mean, wow, the, what you said, I mean, it's so true. And I'm so glad that you are there for people because it's so important to have someone who gets you, who understands you, who's being through it. Like I've had many counselors who were just who were cisgender and heterosexual and they just didn't get it and some of them were very well-meaning and lovely lovely people and probably could have helped anyone if it wasn't for the fact that what I needed their help with were issues with my queerness and they just they didn't have the experience to know that so like you said it's so important but the fact that there's barriers to accessing 
that kind of mental health care from the position of the clients, but then also there's barriers to even becoming a therapist if you're queer as well. It's just like double whammy, really. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And certainly like I know I've experienced and maybe you have too, it sounds like um, that I've had, I've experienced so many microaggressions from really well-intentioned like clinicians that really ask some questions that like, I don't know if that was clinically appropriate or I don't know if that was actually to help me or to better like help your understanding of like the queer community. And like the last thing we wanna do when we're looking for help from someone is to be harmed by them and have to educate them. And sometimes if we're looking for a space where we're trying to explore that because we don't even know ourselves yet and then being put in a place to educate that can make folks like really have a sour taste in their mouth about even trying therapy again or looking for someone new. Um, I have had so many clients that come to me like talking about horror stories of like therapists that they've seen, um, that it was just so uncomfortable and so terrible for them. And I, I think about those therapists and I think about my own experience and like, I know they're so well-intentioned, right? But it's not all, it's not about our intentions. It's about the impact of our, like our words and behaviors and like, as a mental health professional, you there's so much power there. There's so much like that we have to be aware and conscious of. And that's why for me, it's like no questions asked. I'm in my own therapy because I need to be able to like recognize those biases, like understand those blind spots so that I can really reduce as much as possible the risks of harm for my clients. And I don't know that that's necessarily the case amongst so many cis straight providers, because when we operate in this world of privilege, we haven't even like had an opportunity ourselves to even like be confronted with that question. Like, oh, is that even a thing that I should maybe even think about? Because we just operate in the world thinking that our way and I say our way, their way is the normal, <laughs> like the straight cisgender way is normal. So everyone must adhere to that. Um, and that's the insidiousness of like privilege and the insidiousness of a like being identified as someone who fits the quote norm. There really is like harm there for you yourself because then you feel like you can't explore your own sexuality. You can't explore your own gender identity. Um, and I think it's a space for everyone to explore. I think it's so beneficial to really just ask those questions um, and really know for sure. Yeah, I could not agree more. I think you've made two fantastic points there. One, that the cis and straight community should also be reflecting on their gender and sexuality. And that doesn't mean questioning it. You don't have to be like, oh, am I straight? Like, If you feel like you are, then great. But you do need an understanding of your sexuality and gender identity. And I feel like the cis community don't because it's just like oh I'm the norm cool don't need to question that don't need to understand it beyond those words done which obviously like you said everyone needs that space to think about it but the other thing that you said that um really hit home for me and I think it filters out beyond sort of mental health um therapists and counselors 
is the idea of checking your privilege and checking your biases and checking the impact of your words. And I think that that's something a lot of people should be doing in day-to-day life as well. It's not just, I mean, it's it's even more harmful if you think about it when it's in that sort of mental health um, therapist one-on-one environments. But in day-to-day life, you experience those microaggressions too, where people ask invasive, inappropriate questions or make invasive, inappropriate comments based on their biases. And it's just it needs to stop in short. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and those invasive questions that of course, like trans and gender non-conforming folks experience about like their genitals, like nobody goes around asking a cisgender person about their genitals. We also forget that like intersex folks exist. It's not just man, woman. Um, there are so many variations in the way that like chromosomes can even like show up in a person. Um, but yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think a lot of times like perhaps like a barrier for even like cis and straight people is that like, it becomes like the umbrella of queerness. And if I don't identify there, then I don't have any right to think about it. And I like totally disagree. I think like we all have a gender, we all have a sexuality. So why not understand yours in a more robust way? Um, And it doesn't necessarily have to be like you said, am I straight or not, but what do I like? Um, Like what are my sexual fantasies? What are my sexual desires? And like being in touch with that, that's a piece of sexuality too. It's not just who you're having sex with, but like what you like. Um, And like with the gender, it's like allowing yourself to break free of these rigid, like masculine feminine standards like so what if you're straight and you'd like to try out a pair of heels try it out I have found wearing them to be like the most empowering thing for me um maybe someone feels completely opposite like let yourself grow your hair out shave your head um like try these things that are like often associated with one particular gender and let yourself know for sure if that's something that you like or not no I couldn't agree more it's I mean this is my podcast is as much for the allies as it is for the queer community because it's it is a process and it and um a journey of education that we all need to go on. Um, but anyway, one thing that you'd mentioned that sort of, um, it was a question I'd wanted to ask you anyway, was regarding you your work reviewing the policies and procedures for queer and gender affirmative care. Could you tell me a bit more about that? Absolutely. Um, so, so many times, um, like policies, um, especially when it comes to like clothing that you wear um, in a workplace is so gendered, like women must wear heels and skirts. Like I literally still see this in so many organizations, like women should wear dresses and they have to be below your knee and you can't have any cleavage. Like these things are written in policies for organizations still to this day. Um, And like, I found that when I was working at Montefiore Medical Center in the South Bronx, it said that men needed to wear collared shirts and slacks. And I'm like, well, I have 
rompers and dresses and heels and all of these things that I wear that affirm my gender, but you're saying it's not a part of like the policy for how you're blindly labeling me. Like there was no policy for how gender expansive folks um, could present themselves. And though I never encountered from my boss, you're out of like dress code, I certainly got the looks. I certainly had the giggles. I certainly experienced folks really looking at me like, what am I wearing um, in these spaces? And so a part of my work as a consultant is helping like organizations really review their policies to make sure that they're not so restrictive and binary, but also like oftentimes when we're posting job descriptions, they say she, he, but there's no they, there's no no pronouns. So I really try to work with organizations, one, to just remove pronouns altogether. Like you don't need them. You can absolutely revamp any kind of sentence to remove a pronoun. Um, and so I try to do that as much as possible, but if not just putting an inclusive they, like that is a much more like catch all term than he, she. And I've never experienced a cisgender person who like read they and felt offended um, in a job description. Whereas if you're a gender expansive person or trans and you see like all of these he's or all of these she's and it's a point of like distress for you and dysphoria for you, you're likely not even going to want to apply in the first place to this organization because just from the job description, you already see the problems of even trying to go there. Um, and so I really try to work with these organizations and agencies to make sure that the way that they're marketing themselves, the way that, um, their approaching efforts around diversity, equity, inclusion are not just the diversity piece of like, let me check the box. Like I have a gender expansive um, person that works here. I have a black uh, employee. I have a gay employee, check, check, check. Because if you just check off those boxes, you're putting those of us who are already at so much risk um, and even more harm by forcing us into spaces that aren't really welcoming us, aren't wanting to have us there. And so ensuring that um, workshops happen amongst different agencies where folks are starting to really unpack their own biases and understand the ways in which oppression can come up that it doesn't mean that we're bad people. We just have been trained to hold stereotypes and prejudices within us. And we oftentimes, because we're not examining them, enact discrimination in many, many ways, almost every day, because we haven't been taught to challenge it. And so sometimes I'll provide workshops for different agencies um, around just really understanding the terminology, um, for doctors or clinicians who are trying to understand how to write affirming letters for medical procedures. I can do workshops around that. And so it can really like vary in terms of the need of the agency and what in particular they're looking for. But those are some of like the big ones that I, that I do with a couple different agencies. Yeah, that's absolutely amazing the work you do because it's such simple ways to change and make an environment so much more inclusive but like you said without being tokenistic and just saying oh look we have one gay employee who then has to be the figurehead of all gay people ever at that company like that's terrifying as well it's it's about breaking down the barriers where 
you don't see race, you don't see gender, you don't see sexuality, you don't have to fit into the mold of what the perfect human looks like because we all look different. And it's so simple, but at the same time, it's unbelievable the number of companies who have not implemented these very simple, inclusive things. So what you're doing is so important. And I think that you really hit another like point that's so important is like oftentimes when organizations are even starting to consider it, they look within and then they go to us and they're like, oh, you're the sexual minority. You're the gender minority. You're the racial minority. Let's bring the like few of you onto this task force and add more work to your load to fix this agency um, and like really try to like sort out and dismantle all the ways that this like organization is problematic and instead like by like having someone like myself come in um you're you're looking outside you're having somebody else come in instead of tokenizing your employees which i think is really important like it can be so well-meaning and intention to hold a conversation with your staff and try to center those voices but if you bring if you do that, you're putting folks at more harm, like feeling overwhelmed by having to educate their peers and colleagues, especially when they already are probably encountering maybe racism, sexism, and like transphobia on a daily basis. And maybe they don't have the bandwidth to do it. So I do think it's really important for like organizations to understand that like, look for someone outside who can come in and help you because we're already like tired if you're looking at us and we work for you. Like, um, unless we're coming to you saying, hey, I wanna do this and I would encourage you to listen, um, don't force more work on us. Like we're already exhausted. Yeah, that is the biggest point for me in terms of any form of allyship. And this goes for sexuality, gender, race, everything. Not being lazy with it. So you say that you're not racist or you're not homophobic or you're not transphobic, then actually take the steps to educate yourself and be that ally. Don't put it on someone else. Like you said, don't put it on that one employee to say, you need to fix the problems for me because then you're not actually doing the work that you need to do. Like that employee is already not biased. They don't need to do any work. Yeah, and I think that's so. what I have found in so many agencies and organizations is that these task forces are things that happen like as like an unpaid extra labor. If you're going to ask folks to do something, you 100% need to pay them, um, right? Like so many organizations are trying to like do this loop around of like, wow, we have this internal task force that's dedicated to diversity, equity, and inclusion, but these people are already overworked, underpaid, and we just added another thing to their plate to work on. Um, and I just, I think it's so gross and it speaks to the insidious like nature and like ongoing oppression um, that, that you were bringing up. Yeah, I could not agree more. So like you said, expanding it to outside. So it's not just the individual employees having to do the work for you. Um, to finish off, would you be able to share any mental health support services um, or places that people can go, particularly for queer and non-binary people? Absolutely. Um, on my Instagram page at nicholas.moran.lmhc, that's at nicholas with an H, N-I-C-H-O-L-A-S dot Moran, M-O-R-A-N 
lmhc. I have a resources page and it lists, and this is for the US, um, a variety of different hotlines. Most of them are 24 hours um, that folks can really reach out to when they need care. Um, some of those resources include the Transgender Suicide Hotline, um, the LGBTQIA Hotline that's hosted by the Trevor Project. Um, there's also a National Runaway Hotline. As we know, so many queer people oftentimes need to run away or escape or are actually thrown out of their homes and may need resources. So there's that as well. There's a hotline that I have listed for LGBTQ youth and folks who identify as immigrant or refugees. There's also hotlines and resources for suicide prevention, sexual assault, domestic violence, and um, substance use. And oftentimes um, you can just do a quick Google search and like organizations like GLSEN um, or like a local LGBTQ center are going to have a wealth of resources for you. And a lot of times they even offer free services um, to folks who are most marginalized, like just kind of showing up um, and you're like in need. They really do have folks that are there to help and get you connected, um, be that for mental health, be that like food and other resources. I know here in New York City, there's places like the, the Center, there's Callan Lord, um, there's The Door, which is for LGBTQ youth, um, and so many other agencies um, in the city that can really help connect you with care. Um, but I do have that list of resources on my Instagram page. Yeah, amazing. That's incredible. I'll definitely be linking both your Instagram and these pages to the show notes because one of the barriers often is just not knowing where to go. So it's great that you've got them all in one place. Absolutely. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you so much today. This has been just brilliant in so many ways. Well, thanks for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. You're welcome. Anytime. Thank you so much for listening today. New episodes are available every Wednesday, so please do download, share, and hit that subscribe button so you don't miss a thing. If you have any questions or feedback, please contact the podcast on social media. We are on Instagram at at underscore over the rainbow podcast, Twitter at over rainbow pod, and Facebook at over the rainbow podcast 13. Have a queer week and I'll see you next Wednesday. Thank you.